Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks. Walter Parks. If you'd like to reach out to me, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. Would love to hear from you. What's your story, wherever you are in the world? Hey, thanks, Davine Dial, for all the good work you do managing WPVMFM. We really love your support and couldn't get these shows out without everything you do. So thank you ever so much. And if you would like to join me, any Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time for the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session. I would love to have you on the Zoom call. It's always open to anybody who wants to come. We gather for an hour and just enjoy ourselves writing and reading. You think of it as a Saturday morning open mic. Imaginativestorm.com if you'd like to join us. Imaginativestorm.com. Dot com. And as you know, if you've been listening to this show, I sometimes have people I've never met on the show. Other times I have people I've known for quite a while. Today, I have a friend on the show I've known for many years now. I believe we met around 2006. We met in Paris. Her name is Adrienne Leeds. You may have come across her name if you've been looking for any sort of real estate opportunities in Paris or cultural opportunities as well. AdrienneLeeds.com is where you can find a lot of her her work. And I am so happy to have Adrian back on the call. We've known each other and interacted uh, collaboratively and creatively a bit, but mostly as friends. And so Adrian's going to give us some news about Paris or who knows where this will go. So Adrian Leeds, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Oh, thank you, James. It's such a pleasure to be here again. Of course, I see your smiling face because we're on Zoom, but usually it's in person. Fortunately, we haven't had that opportunity. Thanks to, you know, the last couple of years of insanity. Oh, my goodness. We certainly haven't had it. And I've missed coming to Paris and going to the events that you hold, that regular monthly event gathering called Après Midi. And folks gather at the cafe and, you know, sometimes an author comes by and gives a little talk or some sort of a workshop. And so people people gather in Paris and they have been doing that for, well, for centuries. Well, yes. But for me, they've been doing it since 2003. And you have participated and given wonderful workshops and presentations at Après-Midi, oh, many times. And I know that you're going to be coming this coming year, right? In May. Well, we just booked it. I just just booked it. So yeah, yeah, I'm going to be coming in May. And I'm really excited to, to come back to Paris and spend time with all the people that I know. I had a friend of yours on this radio show a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month or so now, Susan Loomis. And Susan, of course, is in Paris now. And I asked her to give me her take on Paris right now. And I would love to have you do the same thing. You've been in Paris during COVID-19 and you're still helping people find housing and you're exploring the culture and connecting. You're as much a connector as anything else. So what's going on in Paris? What's your take on Paris? What's happening? Well, Paris has exploded 
quite honestly. I mean, as a result of the confinement and people being so pent up and the museums being closed and the cafes being shut down, the moment everything opened up, all hell broke loose, quite honestly. The exhibitions that are taking place in Paris right now are absolutely amazing. And people are out and enjoying them and enjoying the cafes and the restaurants. I just feel that it's back to triple life, not even life, just exploded. It's been amazing. So what are some of the events you've been to that have held your attention? Oh, my word. How much time have we got? There are so many fantastic exhibitions, which is one of the things I like to do. I like to explore the cultural side of Paris probably more than anything else. And so there's an amazing exhibit of Vivian Meyer's photography at the Musée de Luxembourg. There's a Georgia O'Keeffe at the Pompidou Center. Carnivalet has reopened and is absolutely beautiful. There's a new museum um, at the Old Bourse of the Pinot Collection. It's a fabulous, fabulous building. Even if you don't like the art, it's worth going to see. Thierry Mugler has an incredible exhibition at the Musée des Arts et Décoratifs. A Hundred Years of Vogue has just opened up at the Galliera. I mean, it, it goes on and on and on. And I've tried to see as much as I can, but you need, you need a lifetime. <laughs> this is a problem. And so all the people are out on the street, back in the museums. How, how are you oh, yeah. handling the uh, COVID-19 pandemic? Is it part of the consciousness? Are people being careful? Are you afraid it might come back or are you thinking it's under control? Where where are you with that? People are not wearing masks so much on the street, but definitely in any enclosed area as they should. A very huge percentage of the population is now vaccinated. I just got my, my booster shot, my third shot today, as a matter of fact. So people are feeling pretty confident. There has been a little bit of a resurgence in some of the other European countries as of late, but France is still pretty much holding its own and we're feeling confident. And so I know that you've been working in Paris for many years mostly helping people find homes in Paris and you've housed them and they come to you for all kinds of, of services around making their way into the French, French culture. How have you had to adjust during this pandemic time? Because you are so resourceful, Adrian, and you think of things to do regardless of what's going on around you. So how have you navigated this from your business and personal oh, point of view? been a fantastic experience. First of all, I'm a property consultant. Okay. Those are the formal terms, but what I really do is help people realize their dreams and change their lives for the better. It really starts with this idea of wanting to spend more time in France, either temporarily or permanently and find housing. But for me, it's about enriching their lives. And so it's very, it's a very rewarding experience. During the COVID-19 situation, when people couldn't get to France, they were stuck at home, surfing the net, looking at properties, dreaming about being in France. We were able to fulfill that dream by finding properties sight unseen. And so our clients have been buying like incredible, completely sight unseen, willing to do that trusting us to find them a great property. We've been doing that. We don't have a single unhappy client. 
And it's been a really interesting and fascinating experience because we have to work harder to make sure that property is absolutely perfect, that when they do eventually see it, that they're going to be happy with it. But that's okay. It's worked out very, very well. We've been, I'm busier than a one-arm paper hanger. So if someone wanted to come to you and have you help them locate in France, what would the steps be to make that happen? Oh, it's actually pretty simple. Um, I do a two-hour consultation. That's when we start on Zoom or on the phone or Skype or something like that. Talk about what their goals are, how to go about accomplishing them, pulling together all those resources, and then making it happen. I just got off a call with a woman in New York who this has been her dream for a long time. She loves France. She's got a good job. She makes a decent amount of money and she's got the resources to do it. She's at a good age where she can get a mortgage and she's going to go for it and buy a nice property in Paris. And I told her, be prepared because when you start to spend more time here, you're going to eventually move over. It always happens. <laughs> so when you're looking for pieces of property in Paris, is it tight, hard to find or... Are they available or do you just happen to know where the right place is around the corner because you walked by it yesterday? The truth is that I'm not the one who does the looking. I have a staff of people who are the feet on the ground and actually do the research. And it can be easy or difficult depending on what the client's looking for, right? I mean, there's a, a real shortage of small properties because the prices are lower. And so there's a big demand. There's a glut of really large properties for the same opposite reason. And it depends on location because it's just harder to find a jewel in the Marais than, for, than 16th. So it really does depend. But um, my staff, they've been working with me for years and they're great. They really know how to do it. And it takes a lot of ferreting out. There's no MLS. There's no multiple listing service. You can't go to one resource. You have to go to all the different agencies. Sometimes you just have to look up. You know, sometimes you have to go to the guardians, the concierges and say what's in the building. You have to, you know, you have to be creative. And you also do a TV show as well, which you've done plenty of. I think House Hunters oh, is what it yeah, is. House are Hunters you, International. Yeah. Are you still are you still doing that? Oh, yeah. I've got one scheduled at the end of this month that I'm filming in Paris. I've done almost 50 shows. I've done more than any other agent. And how does that work? I know people are curious about these things. They watch these shows and and yet, you know, what's going on in the background? How do you make something like, <laughs> like that happen? Or can you, you can't give away all the secrets, but I bet you have a few you could reveal. Well, I mean, it's it's TV, okay? So it's, it's in some ways it's fiction based on reality because you can't actually film in real time. But the motions we go through are the same in effect. We start with a, what's called a contributor. That contribu contributor has pretty much already found the property that they're buying or renting. And then we recreate what they went through to get to that point. But they haven't seen those properties. So their reactions are real and there's no script. Whatever we say off the cuff or not, it's real, as much real as reality TV can actually be. And they're fun to film. They take about four or five days. They do 20 or more hours of that film and then reduce it down to about 22 minutes, believe it or not. So the editor's got to pull the 
key parts out, but they do a really good job. It's HGTV, House and Garden TV, and it's one of their most popular shows. And you say you've done 50 or so of those? Almost 50, yeah. Oh, my god. The one gosh. about the film is 47 or 48. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember once you told me that you sometimes walk down the street and people recognize you and you didn't realize you had been viewed as much as it seems that you have. I must admit, I get stopped almost every day as long as the Americans are here. When the Americans weren't here, I mean, the French don't have a clue. And so they don't care. But uh, when the Americans are traveling here, I get stopped. Yeah, almost every single day in the craziest places. <laughs> what would an example of a story be about that? Oh, <laughs> uh, I think one of my favorites was I was sitting in a cafe in Nice on Promenade des Anglais. And, but I was sitting pretty far back and this woman kind of spotted me from the sidewalk and she ran over to say, oh my God, I watch you on House Hunters. I just love you on the show. In fact, it, seeing you is more fun than if I had seen Angelina Jolie. And I was, I was like, okay, no one's ever, you know, <laughs> compared me to Angelina Jolie. That's not bad. Okay, I'll take it. Thank you. <laughs> not a problem. Going a little deeper in the work that you do, you send out a newsletter, and I've always marveled at how in-depth your writing is, and I've often recommended to people who are in, inquiring about what's the economy like in France. I said, look, if you want to read a Wall Street Journal level article about business, read Adrian Lee's work oh, on, on financial stuff. So how did you acquire such a, an interest in that kind of material that's it's layered, it's nuanced, it's complicated, and yet when you write about it, it you clearly understand it, and it's extensive what do you do to make that happen <laughs> or do you just sit down and channel down the and school of economics <laughs> no, um, well okay so i write three newsletters a week one of them is a lifestyle piece mondays is pretty much just lifestyle it's about the life i experience and and how that relates to the reader because it's not really about me it's really about how the reader can relate to you know the experience i've had I do a similar piece on Wednesdays, but my piece on Wednesdays is actually targeted to driving my readers toward doing something which helps benefit my business. It's a sales piece, but it's designed in a way that you wouldn't necessarily know that it's a sales piece. And then the other one is called French Property Insider, and it's really specifically about what's going on in the world of property in France. And I have to do quite a bit more research for that than for the other ones. This is what I do all day long. So it's easy. It's what we're working on all, all the time. So it's not difficult, really. So in terms of people understanding how the French real estate business works or business in general in France, what are some of the big differences between what happens in your world doing business in, in Europe in France and what's going on in America. And, and how do you help people understand that? Because it must be quite a conundrum for American thinking people to come and try to navigate your world. Well, our world is the absolute opposite of your world in the United States. 
The primary reason for that, and this is something that it took me 20 years to learn, is that our legal systems are diametrically opposed. I think this is the most important thing for anyone spending time in France needs to understand. The US is based on English law and English law is based on what's forbidden. And France is based on Napoleonic code, which is based on what's allowed. Let's take these two ideas. When law is based on what's forbidden, so you, you know that you're not allowed to steal or kill or this or that, and then everything else is possible. So it's very kind of open-minded and out of the box thinking. And it allows actually for a lot of freedom. Napoleonic code, because it's based on what's allowed, means that you have to follow the rules and anything outside of that is forbidden. So this is very much inside the box thinking. You don't color outside of the lines and you don't think outside of the box. So you take these two ideas and they are absolutely contrary to one another in every which way and form. And if you can apply these principles to the cultural clashes that you experience as an American when spending time in France, it will help a lot to understand why you're coming up against these clashes. And it's true for absolutely everything that happens here. As I said, it took me 20 years to understand this really basic difference. And now that I do, boy, I get it. I can understand exactly why things don't make sense to my American brain, my American cultural default mode. From the American point of view, Americans would think, I know what the law tells me I can't do. So anything else I can get away with, push the edges. I don't yes. necessarily have to do this. I'll make up my own rules. As long as I'm following these little slivers of law that tell me what I can't do, like don't go out murdering people or right. rob, robbing the bank or some of these other things, but the rest of it is open for interpretation. So what happens to Americans when they arrive with that attitude fully embodied and they run into some of these serious rules that they're not allowed to get around. How does that change them? Well, it's first of all, it's a huge shock. And we can recognize when one of our clients we is going to have a lot of trouble adapting <laughs> because they just can't quite understand why things are the way they are. And they have an expectation that is completely unrealistic. So yeah, it can be very difficult and very shocking for someone. What would be an example of, of an expectation being unrealized? Let's add to that this whole idea that in the US, because it's such a capitalist system, everything is money oriented. Everything has to do with the bottom line, that everything is driven by the value of something, monetary value. In France, money is a disgustingly dirty thing that they don't want to have anything to do with, and nothing has to do with money. Okay, so that's the other side of it because it's a socialist democracy. So an American comes in thinking that their money is going to buy them a certain level of respect or service or something like that, when in fact it's the opposite. It just buys them disdain. So you can try to push yourself on the French and wave your money around, and they really will be offended by that and tell you to go whatever yourself. 
as a result. On a small scale, you could be in a restaurant and you want to order steak frites, right? Steak and fries. Um, but instead of the fries, you really want salad. And so you might ask the waiter, can I have salad with that steak? And they say, pas possible. It's not possible. And you're going, why isn't it possible? This person over here has a salad. Why can't I have a salad? For them, it's the rule. It's the rule they're following. Okay. They're not going to make that change because that's the rule. It doesn't matter that the customer wants it. It doesn't matter that the customer's paying for it. It's their rule and they're going to follow it. My daughter, who's, of course, you know, Franco-American because she grew up in France, lives in the States, but she came to visit in the summer. And she went to a cafe and she ordered sunny side up eggs, but she wanted them over easy. And the waiter said, over easy. What's that? And she said, you just flip the egg. And he said, c'est pas possible. You can't flip the egg. It'll stick to the pan on the other side. And she says, it's the same egg. <laughs> it doesn't matter. She could not get this guy to understand that that was an okay thing to do, to flip the egg. In his world, you don't flip the egg. That's not how it works. And so she just came back home and said, oh my God, mom, I had a really French experience. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that's kind of when you're going, okay, I can't get my head around this. This makes no sense to me. That they can't think outside of that little box they have. His box told him you don't flip an egg. <laughs> that's all there was to it. And yet your daughter is, while well, American, she's fully fluent in French culture, isn't she? Completely. Speaks French with no accent. I mean, it wasn't like they were up against some American who didn't know what was going on. She said they were laughing so hard they couldn't believe it, you know, that they were arguing over whether they could flip an egg or not. I mean, I could tell you story after story after story, but... <laughs> Continuing on this cultural exploration, Americans come to Paris with rosy eyes oh, and God. all romantic. Yeah. And I know it's the same thing that happens in Taos, where I'm, I live now. And I go back and forth from Asheville to Taos, but I've been here in Taos more. And people come to Taos uh, for some of the same reasons. They're smitten by the light. They mm -hmm. love the culture. It's an international town, even though it's a very small place. And, and you can bump into all kinds of interesting people just cruising through the coffee shop. So folks mm -hmm. will come and they'll buy a house here. And about a year or two later, they don't look quite as happy because they've dropped into the, the rhythm of Taos. And the rhythm of Taos is basically independent. You do your thing. You engage your work. You go out and socialize. And then you come back and you do your thing, engage your work, and then go back out and socialize. The focus is more private, I'm doing the work, and then going out. So the dazzle kind of subsides. And I think I'd love to hear you reflect on that in Paris as well. I've most of the time been in Paris in the wintertime. This year, I'll be coming in May doing, doing your après-midi thing, thank you very much, on the second Tuesday in, in May. So it'll be light and more beautiful. But I've walked around Paris many times over the years, and I've been coming since 1985 regularly. So I feel comfortable there. And I will tell you, I've been lonely in Paris, and I can remember walking around at night 
and slipping once on some mud and falling down on the sidewalk, not a soul in sight. And it was moist and damp in November. And I felt like I was completely without relatives, friends, or anybody. So there was the contrast for me between those two. I actually like the duende of, of those moments. What happens to people in Paris when they come and how do they adjust to the regularity of it? Or do they ever lose their infatuation with the dazzle? Well, that's a multifaceted question, okay? Because um, one of the things I find about Paris is that it's, I have never been lonely in Paris. For me, Paris is my lover. I personally think it's impossible to be lonely in Paris. I'm not wild about the gray and the rain, which is one reason I come down to Nice so often to get some sunshine, but I can sit in a cafe in Paris and feel like I'm certainly a part of the community. Even if I'm sitting there all by myself, working away on my computer or whatever, because you've got cafe life, you're not living in the bubble. You know, in, in the US, even New York, you're pretty much living in a bubble. You know, you're in your house, uh, you get in your car, you go to the restaurant or the shopping center or the theater or whatever, and then you get back in your car and back to your house. There's no real communion with anyone else. Whereas in Paris, you're in the public all the time. You're in cafes, you're in public transportation. You're always communing with someone else. And the relationship that you have with those service people, the waiters, the merchants, is very, very different than in the US. You can really create a relationship with those people in a very different way than you would in the US. They come to know you, you become someone, not just a customer. It's not about your money, it's about serving you the friend, the person. I find it's actually not at all in any way, shape or form lonely, it's the complete opposite. I feel lonely in the US. That's interesting. I love Paris and I have felt as full as I could possibly be in Paris. And yet I have noticed some of those more melancholy moments in my life, just walking around. Now, this could be singular, could be just focused on me. Each person has his or her own 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 experience around that. Did Maybe you had a past life in Paris and what your experience is something that happened many, many moons ago in right. some other way. It's, it's possible. And I'm not saying that these moments of loneliness, I call them loneliness, moments of aloneness maybe would be a better way to describe it. I'm not saying it's a negative thing. I'm just saying I have noticed how close in it gets to me. I remember I went to Belleville and did a reading at a little funky poet's cafe. And the fellow that set the reading up was an American guy who'd been living in Paris forever. And he said, oh, I'll give you an apartment. So he gave me a key to a little flat, tiny little thing, tucked away, one bed, not, not much else. I don't even know if it had a, a kitchen. I'm not sure. Anyway, it was a place to stay. And, and I went out of the cafe, walked down the street, took a right, took a left, passed by a, a local cafe, and the street got quiet. Mm -hmm. And nobody was there. And it was very private. And I opened the door and went up and I was all alone in this rather Spartan place. Mm -hmm. And that aloneness 
became part of me in that moment. So it might be more fair to say the aloneness I have known in Paris, mm. the, the, the duende, the essence of, a, of the night that is quiet rather than loud and beautiful and flashy and sparkly, which I love as well. I must admit, I've never felt that way. And I've never felt insecure or frightened in Paris from a, you know, from a safety standpoint. So for instance, I walk into my building and I go through a carriageway and then into a big courtyard. You've been there. So you know what I'm talking about. I enter that at night in the dark and I never have one time thought for a second that that wouldn't be a safe place to be. No matter what. Never. To make that point as a woman that you have felt safe in Paris, it's an excellent observation. Why so? Why are you feeling safe well, in Paris? Paris is an absolutely fantastic place for single women, especially older single women, because women in the United States generally fear for their safety and don't necessarily go out at night by themselves, for example. They have to drive home alone. If they have a flat tire, they have to deal with that. It's just not a very safe place to be. Paris is very well lit at night. There's not anywhere near the kind of personal crime because it's not a gun culture. So maybe you'll get pickpocketed, but that's about the worst thing that's going to happen. Generally feel very, very safe. So you can be free. As a woman, you can absolutely be free to be out by yourself at just about any hour in just about any neighborhood and not have the same issues. So for single women... My age, fantastic. And you have been in Paris now quite a while, and you've established yourself in a business that's thriving today and was thriving when I met you. I know you've said you've had a few ups and downs over the time, but you have navigated from an entrepreneurial point of view, a magnificent uh, route into a place where you are able to now function with great fluidity. As an entrepreneur, what are some of the things you might like to say to other women who are thinking, what's possible for me? And the reason I ask this is because I offer a lot of artist way classes, creativity classes, have many, many on the call, and they're all asking similar questions. How can I gain traction for the rest of my life? How can I remain relevant? So as an entrepreneur, what gives? Well, first of all, thank you for all those kind words. It's very nice for you to say. I think necessity is the mother of invention. I wasn't as independent when I was a married person as I am now. Divorcing put me in a situation where I had to be creative and figure out how to make things work that weren't so simple. I think divorce was one of the best things that ever happened to me. No, no, no offense, okay, to my ex-husband. <laughs> what that does, it means that I could just focus on myself and my career and not have to compromise with someone else. And that's a big difference for one thing. I had a daughter to take care of, so I had a big responsibility. And as I said, necessity is the mother of invention. So you have to put yourself out there. If you just have to put yourself out there, take the risks. Use whatever skills you have, network, and love what you do. You just have to really love what you do and not worry about the money. Because if you love what you do, it will work for you. 
the big mistake is just seeing the money and not seeing the life. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And people will often say something similar. Successful people say something similar when I ask that. And it's such a simple piece of advice and yet difficult for people sometimes to embrace. And yet when they do embrace it, it works. And another thing I wanted to track with you, you know a great deal about the profession you're in, which is helping people find their dreams, which of course doesn't touch on the money. It touches on the dreams. You didn't go to graduate school and get a <laughs> master's degree in dream finding. You didn't come to the school and say, I, I went to, I went to fashion design school. Okay. <laughs> uh, you learned this along the way by being open, curious, receptive, and generous, because I find you to be very generous. You've been very generous to me. Thank you. The truth is that there's ups and downs, okay? There's been a few pretty bleak, down-in-the-dumps moments. Uh, One of the things, though, that really changed my life was the philosophy of Eckhart Tolle, who wrote The Power of Now and understanding how to live in the present moment. So I try to teach my clients how to actually do that. I think it was the most important thing I ever learned was how to actually understand that our lives exist in the present moment, that everything that's happened in the past cannot be changed and we can learn from it, but we can't change it and we have to accept it. We have no real choice. And everything that will happen in the future is completely in our heads and illusory and will never actually come to pass. And so there's absolutely no reason to fear it. When you really embody this philosophy, which I believe I did, I, um, it removes all fear. It means that you can make decisions without being fearful of the decisions you make. And you can go forward with confidence. And that's extremely important. Fear is very debilitating. I have watched so many people in the last two years with COVID-19 just envelop themselves in this fear of catching this virus. That is what frightens me, okay? That they cannot get beyond this sense of dread and fear. And they don't really have a true perspective of what they're dealing with. Eckhart Tolle describes this in a simple way. He says, you don't fear fire because you basically understand it. If you stick your finger in the flame, you know you're going to get burned. Therefore, you don't stick your finger in the flame. Okay? So the fear that we have is of the unknown, right? The fear we have is that the person next to you might have COVID and might breathe all over you, and therefore you're going to get sick and die. (laughs) Okay? But it's completely unknown. It's completely in our heads and illusory. The way to get around that fear is, of course, to do the things that protect you, right? So you wear your mask or you get your vaccination or you stay confined and you do things that are reasonable. And then after that, you can't really do much more, but there's no reason to be fearful of it. And so quite honestly, through this whole period of COVID-19 and the pandemic, and I really have not had any fear. I just, it just, I, I deal with it. You know, I do what I'm supposed to do. 
but I'm not going to live every day in fear of it. And if I were to get sick, then I get sick and then I deal with it. And then there's nothing I can do about it. I have had a similar experience. I've been respectfully afraid of what COVID-19 can do if I were to catch it, because I know that it is a tough disease for a lot of people. Some people just breeze through, no problem. A lot don't. So I have been respectfully afraid of it. That said, I've done more exciting work. I've been more engaged and more freed up to just be myself in this time period than I've ever been in my life. And I've managed to avoid it. I've done like you've done. I've taken my my mask. I don't, I like wearing my mask. I kind of get a kick out of it actually. And it's fun to like be a little bit of a Halloween character, even <laughs> when Halloween's not around. And of course I've had my vaccinations. A lot of people I know push back on that. And all I say to folks who haven't been vaccinated is I have been vaccinated and I am in that camp. And I like being in that camp. And that's that. You know, there are people who are close to me who don't believe in the vaccine. They're afraid of it. That's their gig. I can't change that. I think that, again, it's about risk. And at my age and in my situation, I can't afford not to do that. You know, if I were 25 years old, I might not be so quick to get vaccinated because 25-year-olds manage to get through the virus better. And unfortunately, I know people who have died most of them, though, had health problems and they might have died from catching almost any virus, actually. But and I'm not discounting the seriousness of this in any way, shape or form. I, but I do believe that the fear itself is worse than the virus itself. The fear of it, the psychological aspects of it, I think, are much worse than the actual illness. It could be possible for people. Maybe not for everybody, but for a lot of people, they've become so enveloped in fear, they can't move they and they're completely function. paralyzed and they go down completely mentally. And while they might get COVID-19 and it might put them in the hospital and they might die, the odds are if they do all the precautions, they'll likely manage to go through and they, the fear is not actually, justified. Actually increase their susceptibility to the virus by being fearful. If you've spoken to anyone who uh, really studies mind over matter, placebo effect situation, our minds are very, very powerful. And we do control our bodies. We do actually control the way we respond to things. How many stories have we all heard about people who have overcome cancer? Okay, not through chemo or radiation, but through mental gymnastics. So there is a lot of truth to that. We have to believe ourselves to be happy and healthy and not fearful. I think that's really important. The other thing that's happened with COVID-19 is that the media really thrives on the fear because that's how they get ratings. And they instill a tremendous amount of fear in people. You don't hear them saying, you know, you could do better if you were healthier. So let's try to all eat better, exercise more. They're not saying those things as a way of combating this virus. They're not doing that. And that's quite honestly, that's shameful. That's really what the media should be doing out there is getting people to feel good and be healthy and behave in a healthy way so that they can combat the virus. 
And speaking of feeling good and and being healthy and with a little bit of time we have left, because I know you have to skedaddle off, let's come back to Paris. I feel great in Paris. I feel healthy in Paris. I I love that place. And I, I care so much for all the friends I've made there. And it's been really, really good to me. So what do you have in your plans for the next six months, how are you going to be feeling good? And maybe mention one more time at Primidi. I love your Primidi and what's going on? What's coming well, up? Well, that's a coffee gathering that I've been doing since 2003 on the second Tuesday of every month, except for August. That's just two hours. There's always a speaker, someone as interesting and fantastically fun as you are. And we talk about all sorts of amazing subjects often have um, authors who are presenting their books and Susan Loomis has uh, presented in fact she presented fairly recently she's always fun it's a great way of meeting people and it's free just have to show up between three and five o'clock on the second Tuesday of the month at the Cafe de la Marie which is on the corner of Rue des Archives and Rue de Bretagne in the third Paris though I'm going to tell you right now Paris is dangerous for pedestrians The city has reworked its streets to include bike and scooter lanes, but they really haven't done a very brilliant job of it. And this is my opinion. It's a big, massive spaghetti. And uh, it is now dangerous to be a pedestrian as a result because the scooters and bikers don't seem to pay any attention to traffic signals or crosswalks or anything like that. They've got their lanes and as long as they're on their lane, they don't care how fast they're going or who they're going to run over. So I would warn everyone out there to be very careful. My joke is that if I'm going to get killed by a scooter in Paris, not by COVID-19, okay, my chances of getting hit on the streets of Paris are way greater than catching COVID-19 at this point. So that's one of those I'm weighing the risks, (laughs) looking at the reality of things, because when you really look at the numbers, Okay, it is a lot more dangerous (laughs) to be on the streets of Paris. Everyone knows that I'm not a big fan of the current mayor, Madame Hidalgo, who has created this mess. And I'm not the only one talking about it. You get into any taxi or Uber and the driver, first words out of his mouth are complaints about the traffic patterns and what Madame Hidalgo has done. (laughs) It's It's almost a joke. I mean, everybody's talking about it. Liz Alderman, a journalist for the New York Times, recently ran a big article about the the spaghetti situation in Paris and the mess. And I just keep hoping that eventually they'll clean this up because it's that scary. <laughs> That's the risk I worry about. It's flying in the face of these people all following the rules that are written. And why do you think that they're not following the rules when usually it's part of the culture? Okay, so that's kind of part of the dichotomy of the culture. So because you're supposed to follow the rules, it can be like being put in a straitjacket and then being asked to perform somersaults, right? So they have to find ways of breaking the rule in order to actually have a life. Because if not, you're just kind of stuck inside the rules and you can't actually do anything. It's part of the problem of this whole culture. So the French are famous for following the rules, but they're also famous for breaking them. As long as they can get away with not stopping at a light or a crosswalk, then that's what they're going to do. And it's really up to the city to crack down on that and start issuing fines. But the police 
they think it's beneath them to do stuff like that. They don't find the people who let their dogs poop on the sidewalk and they don't find the scooters who are just going in every which direction, but they do have a very big problem because there has been an unbelievable number of accidents. It's incredible. It's my complaint at the moment. Complaining about Paris. So on an optimistic note to go out on, <laughs> give, give us something optimistic. <laughs> I, I love the way I do have to, I have to say you will often take up an issue in your newsletter and you're really well informed and you will take a position. And I've always admired that about you. You are not afraid to take a position and say, here's where I stand and, and make an argument for it. And I, I think that's a wonderful thing to do. More people would be better served if they did that. Well, I mean, what am I going to do? I can't be all things to all people. I do believe that I can be influential to at least get people, maybe not to think the way I think, but to at least think for themselves, just to think about what they think about something and how they're going to deal with it rather than just follow the rules. Um, I have a feeling that Madame Hidalgo has a very big dossier on me because I am very vocal about this. Uh, that would not surprise me. But again, I just don't live in fear. I just don't have it. And I think it's a result of my Eckhart Tolle philosophies. I think that's wonderful. And you are afraid of the scooters and yet you're not in fear. Well, in terms of risk. Okay. Mm -hmm. When assessing risk, I think that there's a much bigger risk that I will get killed by a scooter than by COVID. Now, obviously, because I understand that they're everywhere, I don't just cross the street anymore. I look 10 ways before I cross the street. That's like not sticking my finger in the flame. So you just have to know how to deal with it. So when people come to Paris, you are telling them, don't stick your finger in the flame, but enjoy the sizzle of the city. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And right now the city is definitely sizzling. Definitely sizzling. The cafes and restaurants all have outdoor seating now. They've moved into what were parking spaces. So the streets are much more pleasant. Everybody's out enjoying that. The energy, you, you just feel it. You just feel that people are happy that they're out and about and they have a life. It, yeah, it's, it's great. It's wonderful. Adrian Leeds, I know you have other things to go do this busy evening in Paris. So I just want to thank you ever so much for being my friend, agreeing to thank come you. back on the show. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Jim Nave. Thank you for the same reasons for, you know, our wonderful relationship we've had all these years and for inviting me to come speak with you and sharing some of my crazy ideas. We'll do it again another time, I hope. Well, and I hope to see you, if not before, see you in May at Après-Midi. Absolutely. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Adrian Leeds. I've always enjoyed connecting with Adrian and having the kind of conversations that we just had, the conversation that you just listened to. What I've learned in my conversations with Adrian is that she will always consider something you propose to her and she often says yes. I first learned about Adrian when I was at a friend of mine's house. Her name is Anna Oliver. She lives in New York and we were there for an evening of 
her work. She's an author, plus I was reading some of my work. We had some musicians. Basically, it was just a bit of a salon thing. And in the course of the evening, Anna and I started to talk about Paris. And I said, yeah, I have a friend who lives in Paris. He lives on Rue Dauphine, and I've been going there for years. And Anna said, oh, I like Paris, too. I, I've been thinking I'd like to get an apartment there, move over and live there for a while. And of course, many, many people have that as a dream. Not everybody, of course, but a whole lot of folks. And certainly Anna and I were in that camp. So she and I were just chatting away about Paris. And she said, do you by any chance know Adrian Leeds? And I said, well, no, I don't know her. And then Anna said, well, she buys and sells real estate. And She's been in Paris for a long time, and I've been kind of talking to her about the possibility of finding an apartment there. And then Anna continued by saying, well, you should look her up the next time you go. She's doing all kinds of things, not only in real estate, she's also doing things in, in the arts as well. So I thought, why not? And I looked Adrian up online, adrianleads.com, and sent Adrian an email. And true to Adrian's character, she wrote back very soon and said, oh, well, sure, happy to connect with you. And I did connect with her, and we met when I went to Paris the next time and got to know each other. And so back then, I was visiting Paris at least once a year, and I had a little bit of business there. I'd been doing some presentations in some of the international schools, so I was teaching poetry to the school students there like I'd done over the years. So it was a natural thing for me to connect with Adrian from the point of view of the artistic sensibilities rather than from the real estate sensibilities. And that is when she said, well, you know, if you would ever like to speak at my gathering the second Tuesday of every month. I'll be happy to book you. I call it après-midi, and we get together with English-speaking people as well as French-speaking. The, the event's always in English, so you can present your work in English. And she asked me, what would I like to present? And I said, well, I have this idea about how to teach people to write. It's called the imaginative storm. And I've been doing it for years. I started to do it when I was working with the school students. And just write words on the boards, and then they improv the words and create little pieces of poetry out of it. And she said, that sounds fantastic. Why don't, why don't we do that? So I said, well, let's go ahead and book it. So we booked for the next trip I had planned to Paris, and I don't remember if it was within six months or a year. It wasn't too far down the line, and Adrienne was busy booking people, so she was filling up her months, and I went ahead and said, fine. And I think... I booked it for November, which is the month of my birthday. And so we jotted it down, and I was very happy to have the booking and was looking forward to it. And of course, the time passed quickly, and I landed back in Paris in November, and I was all excited about being part of a pre-midi and speaking, and it worked out really, really well. I was very pleased with how the entire thing unfolded, and people gathered. I imagine we had 30, 35 people in the room upstairs at Le Café de la Marie. And I was a little bit nervous because this is the first time I'd done something with Adrienne and I wanted to, to really impress her. And so nervousness in front of a group of people expresses itself in many different ways. I've always been comfortable in front of people. I've earned my living doing that over the years. And yet, in a new environment, no matter how much experience you have, it tends to sometimes throw you off a bit. So 
I compensated for my nervousness by spending the first maybe 10 minutes telling people my story, telling them what I'd done and how I had worked with students and taught poetry, and I went on and on and on. And finally, I got up my courage to dive into the work and started asking people to give me a provocative image, and I wrote that down. And then I asked them to write words that they thought of based on the provocative image and we wrote those words down and we went on into the imaginative storming process and it worked out really well and after everybody was finished with their little 10-minute writing exercises they then stood up and, and read their work to the group people were pleased with what they heard they thanked me for the work the two hours went by really fast and Finally, everybody left, and Adrian and I were there together, and she said, well, let's walk down to Omar's and we'll get some couscous. So we left the cafe and started walking down the street. Of course, I said to Adrian, as soon as we walked out on the street, I said, well, how did I do? How was it? Adrian said, it was really, really good, except for the first 10 minutes. Of course, me wanting to please Adrian, I was very curious about what she thought happened in the first 10 minutes. So as you might imagine, I said, well, well, what was wrong with the first 10 minutes? And Adrian said, you spent 10 minutes talking about yourself, telling them everything about what you had done. You should have only spent two minutes mentioning what you had done and then get on with it. She went on to say that, Everybody in that room had probably looked me up online. They knew what I was all about, and they were ready for me to make the afternoon about them, not about me. Of course, as I said earlier, I was chatting about myself, mostly because I felt nervous and felt like I needed to establish some credibility. It was really not necessary, as Adrian said. Everybody was there. They had already decided they wanted to spend the afternoon in this imaginative storm environment. And I really, really did not need to go on and on. If you've ever had anybody give you this kind of feedback, you may have felt a little defensive. I certainly did at first. We took a few more steps, headed down to the couscous place, and I started to consider what Adrian was telling me and I didn't get defensive I realized that she was absolutely right now you have probably been at some public functions when people introduced other people or people went on and on about what they had done rather than getting on with it well if you have been in those environments I suspect you know what I'm talking about so I was very thankful that Adrian gave me that note because it got me thinking about how to approach introductions and how to approach the beginning of a talk or the beginning of a speech and how it's so wise just to move into your talk or your speech without much fuss about yourself and that way you communicate that you're actually going to make a big fuss about the people who are in the room. And what I learned on that little walk from the cafe to the couscous place, Omar's, was the best way to make a talk or a speech or any kind of engagement you have with an audience, the best way to make it about them is to use the pronoun you as much as you possibly can. And of course, the best way to do that is to open by saying thank you so much for coming and spending part of your day with us. And that, my friends, is what Adrian Leeds taught me. Just say thank you and make it all about them. 
And on that note, we've arrived at the top of the hour, which means I must say thank you for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio. I really do appreciate your attention and taking the time out of your day to listen to my conversation with Adrian Leeds. Much appreciated. And of course, you have been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. WalterParks.com. If you'd like to know more about Walter's music, Davine Dial, well done on managing the radio station. WPVMFM.org. For those of you who would like to know more about community radio, if you would like to reach out to me, JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N A V E, JamesNave.com. Every Saturday morning, the Imaginative Storm writing prompt of the week, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time. If you'd like to join us and write for an hour, Imaginative Storming, we would love to have you. The door is always open, imaginativestorm.com. And if you ever do end up in Paris on the second Tuesday of any month except for August, you can always attend Adrian Leeds Après Midi. AdrianLeeds.com to find out more about that or just Google I Pray Me D and Adrian Leeds and it will come up. And if you are in Paris in May, maybe I'll see you at the Imaginative Storm I Pray Me D second Tuesday of May. And once again, thank you ever so much for joining in on this conversation. And I do hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I will catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. <laughs>